Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church Conway. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. Thanks for listening. Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3 is where we're going to be. If you have your Bible, turn there or uh, turn on a Bible and flip over to Daniel chapter 3. As you are turning there, uh, to start this story off, you're going you're gonna to know the story. We'll, we'll review it here in a minute, but you know this story. Uh, what I wanted to do was to get us thinking about the word burn. Burn. B-U-R-N. Burn. Uh, burn. That's another way to say it. Um, it's a different dialect. All right. And so burn. Uh, there's four ways I feel like we use burn in English, uh, either dialect, that, and how it applies to us. And I wanted us to think about this. The first one is the more obvious one. That means you, you burn your hand, like you touch a fire, right? If you, uh, like Amos, when he was little, uh, we, we would sing happy birthday to him and he would always try to reach out and touch the flame on the candle. So the whole time we'll have like a cupcake or something and we're singing happy birthday to, you know, and we'd have to pull it away and then we'd put it back for the picture, you know, and then we'd pull it away and then we'd let him blow it because he'd try to touch the flame. And we're parents, so we didn't let him do that. And you've been burned before, right? You've been burned by a fire or something hot like that one time that I was eating fajitas and I put my fork on the skillet and then I ate the fajita and then I picked up the fork and went to clean it off. That hurts, all right? Do not put the fork on the skillet. You'll get burned. So one way is you just get burned by fire. The other one, uh, another one is insult, right? Like a solid burn. Anybody know what I'm talking about here? You ever been burned before that way? Yeah. My kids love to do this. Um, to my kids, I'm not yet 40, but to my kids, uh, my boys, I am an ancient relic of a time gone by, right? That's, and so, so they ask me questions like, uh, did cars have sun visors when you were a kid? Um, just questions like that, you know, like that's a modern um, marvel, you know? And um, they'll constantly make fun of how slow or old or bald I am, something like that. And then, and then the other one will be like, ah, solid burn, you know, that sort of stuff. You know, it's not funny, but they think it's funny. And so I just sit over there and I turn off the Wi-Fi to their device on this newfangled doohickey I have called a phone because I figured it out, you know, that sort of stuff. And so, you know, there's a burn, solid burn. And sometimes you'll even burn yourself. You say something dumb and everybody laughs, you know, and everybody knows that self-burns are rare. So celebrate them, you know, if you, if you self-burn. All right. So, so there's a burn with fire. There's an insult. And then, um, and as I think about it, this is probably the most harmful one. The one that hurts the most is, you know, when your trust is lost, right? You trust somebody, they don't tell you the full story, you end up looking foolish. Or through their ignorance or uh, mean intention, you end up getting burned. Y'all felt that before? You get burned? And you lose trust in that person. And if it happens enough, if you get burned enough, then you'll lose trust in everybody. You'll just lose trust. That sort of burn, that hurts a lot. So you get burned by fire, get burned by insult, you get burned by trust or the lack of trust. And then the fourth one, and this is the only one I could think of in which um, is a good thing, and that is to burn with passion. You know, like newlyweds, they go at each other. Um, that's a good thing. We celebrate that. That's a happy thing. Uh, when they burn with passion for one another, that sort of stuff, and, and uh, makes everybody else uncomfortable, you know, get a room and that sort of thing. But, but it's a good thing. They have this fire within them that's burned. But you can feel that or experience that in a number of different settings, right? You can, you can be passionate about your job or a sport 
or your career, or maybe a movement, or being an entrepreneur, or, or some sort of, um, uh, 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 you know, like movement cry or, 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 or cause that you can be passionate about. The, the reason I wanted to start with us thinking about all four burns, fire, insults, distrust, and passion, is because this super familiar story that we're going to look at, Daniel, uh, it's, it's in the book of Daniel. Daniel's not in the story. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are confronted with the statue they might burn in the fiery furnace. All of those burns are included. Like, think about it. We've got a fire that is so hot that you could, uh, you would die if you go close enough to it. A couple people did. It was that hot, so you burn with fire. There is the burn with the insult, uh, like a solid burn. It's not so much of a solid burn, but verse 18, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah say to Neb, they're like, look, we're not doing it, and even if we die, we're not doing it. So it's a, it's a mild burn, but it's there, all right? So a mild burn. There's also this burn factor in which all of the people of the kingdom, including Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, are in danger of putting their trust in this king in which they would be burned. They would, their trust would be misused. And all of that sets the stage in which we can see both in the heart of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, we can see within them this heart, this passion of worship. All four burns are right there, and all of those are what I want to illustrate and bring to light this morning. But before we do, let's, let's all pray together. You pray for me. And I'll pray for you and then we'll talk about it. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you have encouraged us to learn, to study. God, I pray as we gather together, we would would be passionate about our expression uh, toward you, that we would ever grow closer to you. God, that people in our communities, in our world, in our church, in our country would know that that, uh, that we live for something different, that we are motivated, not by fear, but instead by faith, God, that we live our lives for the good of others and your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. So the story really does go all 30 verses, and I'm not going to read all 30 of those verses to you because it's just a ton, but I will kind of summarize it, and you've seen the story before, or you've heard the story. I, I mentioned this last week, you know, um, uh, the VeggieTales really did a great job of doing this. The bunny, the bunny, oh, I love the bunny. Um, you'll have to look that up later, but that's, that's the story that's going on in this story. So let me explain it. Uh, verses one through three, Nebuchadnezzar sets up this huge statue. It's 90 feet tall. I got curious about that, and I was trying to think, what would 90 feet be? So Rich actually told me that this room, the ceiling, is 32 feet tall. So all the way up past the lights um, to the top there, that's 32 feet tall. So the statue that Neb sets up would be 90 feet tall. And so you're thinking like right here, that part would fit in, our, in, our, in the room we're sitting in right now. And then boom, boom, boom. All right, so huge statue. And we don't know what the statue actually looked like. This is a depiction from the dream he had in chapter two. All right, so in chapter two, he has a dream like this. And some people theorize that that dream was so impactful to him. He became so obsessed with that dream that he just constructed the statue. And so this giant gold statue that looked like that could have been an obelisk or something along those lines. One through three, he sets it up. And four through six, he's got this list of things, everybody and their brother and the dog catcher, all the musical instruments are going to be played. And when they are, all the people are to fall face down in front of this statue. 
That's what's happening there. And then in verse 7, everybody does that, all right? Music plays, everybody falls down. 8 through 12, it gets kind of personal. And it really irritates me, and it should irritate you as well. Listen, in 8, it says that some of the, uh, the Chaldeans... Uh, decided to pick on Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, also known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Decided to pick on those guys. And all it does, it's, that's their only role in the whole story. And so it just reminds us that you can be minding your own business, not even starting anything, and there will always be some people who just want to start stuff. All right? And that's, that's who they are. And so, like, if you ever get frustrated, you ever get frustrated with those kind of people? I do. All right? It's just like you're not even doing anything. And then they just start messing with you. Just as, that's what they live for. Well, I mean, thousands of years ago, those people were around. So I guess we can just kind of deal with it. They tattle on Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And they say, King, they're not bowing down. Like, you told them to. The music was playing. They, they did not bow down. So 13 through 15, Neb is mad. All right? And so he starts asking the three, did you obey? Why, why are you not listening to me? That's what he says in 13 through 15. And in 16 through 18, actually starting in verse 15, uh, 15 through 18, you have this real conflict of power. In fact, in verse 15, Nebuchadnezzar says, listen, I'm going to give you another chance. You're going to bow down. And he says, then who is the God who can rescue you from my power? really sort of an underlying theme in this story. Nebuchadnezzar's power, his might, his kingdom, his influence, his government, his art, his leaders, they're all there to represent. This is a giant parade about how amazing Nebuchadnezzar is. He says, who's going to rescue you from me? This is where that mild burn comes in. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah all respond to him and says, listen, our God, the real God, will save us, but they say, they say in verse 18, but even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you set up. The real line in the sand. This is high noon, okay corral type of stuff right here. You got these three and this one, they're squared off. It's about to be a fight. And those are the words that are said. 19 through 23, Nebuchadnezzar is mad. Nebuchadnezzar, I, I learned that a long time. That's how you spell it, so I keep saying Nebuchadnezzar. Orders that the fire be really hot. Throw a bunch of more logs on there, you know, some um, gasoline, that sort of stuff. And then in verse 21, it says that these men, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they in their trousers, robes, head coverings, and other clothes were tied up and thrown into the furnace of the blazing fire. What he's, what he's trying to communicate there is that it was fast. No no trial by peers, no jury, nothing. They are just convicted and immediately the, the attempt to execute them. That's what it's trying to say. I only want to bring it out because it uses the word trousers. When's the last time that you saw the word trousers? Huh? It's a great word. I think we should bring it back. So trousers were thrown into the fire. All right. Uh, and then in verse 24 through 25, Nebuchadnezzar sees four people and he asks the people that are saying, hey, didn't we throw like three folks in there? And they're like, yeah, of course we did. Because who's going to argue with the guy that throws people in fires? You know, and so it's like, yeah, of course we did. Whatever you say, King. And so they threw three people in there. But he says in verse 25, he says, um, look, I see four men not tied walking around in the fire with their trousers unharmed. And the fourth looks like the son of the gods. This is a really good time to exercise biblical um, awareness. 
and when you're reading the Bible, solid, what's called hermeneutic. When he says the, the fourth one looks like the son of the gods, all of us in our day and age immediately go, that's Jesus, right? He's the son of God. He's walking with his, his followers, that sort of stuff. But there was nothing in Nebuchadnezzar's mind that would have thought about uh, uh, the man who was born of a virgin, walked in Galilee, had 12 disciples, one betrayed. You know, he's not thinking about Jesus the way that we think about Jesus, right? He has no concept of that. Nebuchadnezzar has no concept of Jesus the Christ. Furthermore, Daniel, if he has any concept of at all, doesn't have that fully fleshed out concept of Jesus. Neither Daniel nor Nebuchadnezzar is thinking of Jesus Christ the way that we think of him. So don't be careful. This is a blatantly obvious one, but be careful not to read back into the Old Testament things that you now know in the New Testament. But what is clear is that Holy Spirit in the divine inspiration of the recording and the actions of this story, Holy Spirit clearly knows and understands the scope of Jesus and all that sort of stuff. And so you can see that there is implication to that, but don't immediately think, this is Jesus Christ. This is God. In Nebuchadnezzar's worldview, in his mouth, in his language, what he's saying is, we threw three in there, but one looks divine. Looks like a God. There's, there's a fourth image in there. And I'm not fully understanding this. That's what he's asking about, okay? And so that's what's going on in that text. And then 26 through 30, he has them come out of the fire. They don't smell like smoke or anything like that. And then Nebuchadnezzar says, who says anything? He's, Nebuchadnezzar's like blown away, mind blown, right? He threw people in there. Soldiers died. He pulled them back out or doesn't pull them out. He has them come out. They come out and he's like, if anybody says anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or, or Hananiah, Meshach, and Azariah, will be torn limb from limb. And the house made a garbage dump for there is no other God who is able to deliver like this. I love this text right here, this verse in particular. Have you ever met, or maybe this was you, right? Have you ever met somebody who comes to faith in Christ? They become a Christian like later on in life. And, and they were like, let's just say they were rough before, all right? So like, like, like you picture it, right? They're like, they're like in a motorcycle gang. They killed a couple of people in Reno, that sort of thing. And then they came to faith in Christ. And then they come to church and they're still cussing all the time. You know, they're just walking up, saying things and yelling out curse words in the middle of service. I feel like that's how Neb is, right? He's like, your God is amazing and I will rip your arms off if you say anything bad about him, you know. I can just picture God's over there like, no, man, oh, don't do that. Don't, we don't really rip people's arms off in my faith, you know. It's like, not really worshipful to me. So, but anyways, that's what Nebuchadnezzar says. Also, in chapter 2, uh, Nebuchadnezzar makes the same threat. This is his go-to threat. You know, like some people are like, I will punch you in the throat. Nebuchadnezzar's like, I will rip your arms off and make your house a garbage dump, right? And so I'm sort of picturing like an Uber. You're driving around Babylon and there's like all these, like every couple of houses, there's just a pile of dump uh, and uh, like an empty banana peel on top. That was Nebuchadnezzar's. And they're like, what is this? And your Uber driver's like, eh, I mean, that's our king. He does that, you know? And so that's what's going on here. All right. That's the story. I'm sticking to it. I really believe that this happened. I believe it happened that way. I believe it happened exactly how the Bible describes it. And it's a good story. And the cool thing about historical stories for us is that you can step out of your world, escape from your world, and then you can walk in their shoes for a moment or their trousers, and you can learn 
The lessons, without smelling like smoke or having your life threatened or your house turned into a garbage dump. And so when we walk in those stories and we walk back out, what is the lesson? What are the lessons that we are supposed to learn from this really elaborate sort of carnage children's story that we often tell? Well, here's a couple of them. The first one is this. God is faithful to those who are faithful to him sometimes. First lesson from this story is that God is faithful to those who are faithful to him sometimes. Now that sounds sacrilegious to you and it should. It is sacrilegious what I just said. But let me explain what I'm trying to get at here. God is faithful to those who are faithful to him. All over the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, there are these quotes where God himself says, listen, if you do what I tell you to do, it's going to go really good. I'll bless you. And if you don't do what I told you to do, or if you do something I told you not to do, that's not going to go good for you. And for us in our Western world with our anti-authoritarian mindset, we think that that sounds like something a dictator would say, not a loving God. But it's not. It's actually something very loving and something very good. Think about like agriculture. God set it up in a certain way that you would have certain seasons and that agriculture would work the way that agriculture works. And so if you plant in this season, then you will more than likely harvest in this season. That's the way it goes. But if you plant in this season, don't expect to harvest in this season. If you plant over here, it's not like you can just harvest the next day or harvest whenever you want to, right? There's a certain way that he set it up and he's pretty much saying, if you just do it the way that I set it up, then it's going to go pretty good for you. That's generally what God is saying in those texts. But it makes us think about this. We all accept that. No one even questions it, right? You plant, you harvest, seasons. In Daniel chapter 2, when Daniel is amazed that God told him the dream and its meaning, Daniel actually says, praise to our God who causes the seasons to change. He's completely in charge of how things go. If that's how agriculture works, because God made nature and agriculture, then doesn't it make sense that because God made you, that there would be a way that he set it up? That God set up the church in a certain way? That he, God set up your family in a certain way? That God set up romance and love and, and sexual attraction and finances and, and, and money and stewardship and health and, and, uh, and all of the things, right? God set all of this up. And so it would make sense as a little reminder here that God is faithful to those who are faithful to him. It's like I told the college students on Thursday. You don't have to do it this way. I can't make you, I'm, I'm just a preacher. I can't make you do what the Bible says. But all as a preacher I can do is to tell you, if you do your own way, you will ruin your life. But you go God's way and it will go well with you. So that part makes sense. God is faithful to those who are faithful to him, but it's that sometimes part that's sacrilegious. It's that sometimes part that's not consistent with scripture, but it's that sometimes part that we believe, right? We, see, here's the deal. We interpret the phrase, God is faithful, or God is good, or God is kind, or God is loving. We interpret that phrase to mean God, God is good when things go my way. God is good 
when I feel no pain. God is good when I avoid the sacrifice or stumbling or the hurt or the isolation. God is good in those circumstances. Therefore, God is good sometimes. But we got to be very careful with the way that we interpret the success of the story. Picture it like this. Let's back up the story. You know, like rewind the whole story and you go back to that moment in which Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were just not there. They weren't even there. Daniel's not there either. And I have a theory on why all of that is in place. But there's this huge thing that's happening. They're not even there. And, and some people just start stuff with them. Just mess up their day. And so all of us in our minds would go, man, their day is already ruined. They're following God and their day gets ruined. And then we would pray that they don't have to experience the furnace. But here's the deal. They do experience the furnace. And we would all pray, if we were standing out there, maybe we weren't as strong as them and we're laying face down in front of this golden statue and we're kind of seeing this out of the corner of our eyes. And we really like those dudes because they like let you borrow some of their vegetables in chapter one or something like that. And so we're really liking those guys and it looks like they're about to get dead. And so we're thinking in our minds, man, I hope they don't have to go into the furnace. If they go into the furnace, that whole thing that they're doing with their God is, it's not real. If they go into the furnace, that's a bad deal. But listen, they do go into the furnace and God is still good. You know why he's good? Because there was a fourth man in the furnace. It's not like God is always going to save you from feeling uncomfortable. It's just that God will always walk through that uncomfort with you. So sometimes you go into the fire, but there is a fourth man in the fire and he looks like the son of God. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that different? It totally changes everything. So it's better for us to say it this way. God is good all the time, even if I don't understand what he's doing. God is good all the time, even if I am hurting, even if he takes her, even if it doesn't work out, even if I lose it all. God is good even when I look around the whole world and I don't understand any of this. God is good. This I know. That's what, Dan, uh, that's what Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah stand there saying. We will not bow to that because God is good. And he will save us. And even if he doesn't, that is not a real God. Isn't that amazing? That's a really good story. I love it. Deuteronomy 7 verse 9 says, Know that the Lord your God is God. The faithful God who keeps his gracious covenants, loyalty for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commands. Craig Rochelle is a pastor in Oklahoma. He says, if God has done what you think he should do, trust him. If God doesn't do what you think he should do, trust him. If you pray and believe God for a miracle and he does it, trust him. If your worst nightmare comes true, believe he is sovereign. Believe he is good. God is good. Here's another quote from Jim Cimbala, who is also a pastor. He says, faith is able to say, you, that's evil. Evil, you can do what you like because I know God is going to take care of me. He has promised to bless me wherever he leads me. Remember, that even when every demon in hell stands against us, the God of Abraham remains faithful to all his promises. Jesus Christ can do anything 
and everything, but fail his own people who trust him. God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. So that's the concept there. That's the very basic way. When you have a little Veggie tale story or a flannel graph or a coloring sheet, that is what we tell them, right? That is what we tell kids and that's what I'm telling you. God is good. You take a stance, even if it doesn't work out. But I think there's this underlying, this deeper meaning, something else going on there. I think it's all about, this story right here is all about worship. Worship. If you look through the 30 verses, 11 times, 11 times it says worship. The word worship there over and over. Even the very basic of the literary storyline is that Nebuchadnezzar set up this giant statue that they would all bow down and worship. And that many do, but a few don't. So good. We're going to talk about worship. Just real briefly, let's talk about worship. Worship, what does it mean? I mean, you're in what we call a worship gathering. We have Three of them here on Sunday mornings and there's one in Greenbrier and there's one online and people are gathered together online with us. And, um, and so that's a worship gathering. But what does, we use the word worship all the time, but what does it mean? There's a genre of music called praise and worship, right? But what does that mean? Is it music? Just a minute ago when we were singing songs, you sang, D- did you do good worships? You know, did, did we worships good? You know, I don't know. Like, like, what does the word itself mean and how do we apply it? And so like, are you worshiping? And if the person next to you is not singing, are they not worshiping? You know, that sort of stuff. Or what if somebody sings a different genre or speaks a different language or is in a different way? What, how do we understand worship? Well, real briefly from this story, we can see a couple of different things. The first one is that worship obviously has an object. Worship has an object. And I believe that that object is always, well, I can't say this. Let me say it this way. I believe that nearly always that object is a person. You're always worshiping a person. Always. You might be worshiping God, which that's good. You should do that. The only object worthy of worship is God. You might be worshiping yourself. That's a person, right? I want to make sure that I get what I want to get. Sometimes people will worship um, their family, those peoples. Sometimes they'll worship their nation, put all their faith and their trust and the power and the strength of their nation and the ideals in which they hold. Sometimes people will worship uh, a church. All of these different sort of ideas, we are almost always worshiping a person. Nebuchadnezzar wanted them all to bow down to this giant statue, 90 feet tall, three times bigger than this building, wanted them to worship that statue. But in reality, we all know, it doesn't take a genius, you don't have to know ancient um, Near East Babylonian culture to know that he doesn't actually want them to worship the statue. He wants them to worship who? Himself. This whole charade is about making much of Nebuchadnezzar. There's always an object, and that object's almost always a person. So worship is an object. Worship has an object. Secondly, worship has a motivation. I truly believe that worship is either motivated by fear or by faith, perhaps by feeling, but we'll talk about that in just a minute. Fear of getting thrown into a fire is a good reason to bow down and worship. Like somebody says, I'm gonna throw you into a fire, You go ahead and put your face in the dirt. 
Faith is another good reason to worship, meaning that there is a true God and I believe that he can save me, but even if he doesn't, I will be faithful to him. Fear or faith. And then the third one, and this is really where I wanted to camp out just a second, was that from this story, worship is physical. It has an object, which is almost always a person. They're motivated usually by fear or by faith. And that it is physical. Here's the part that I really feel like we need to work on. That our worship before God, our worship in our lives, takes all of who we are. When you read the Bible in that text there, it says 11 times, right? It says to uh, fall down and worship. All right, fall down and worship. And this is the thought I'm about to Bible nerd out here, all right? And I want everybody to go with me on this journey through nerddom. Um, when you read that, listen, this is really cool. Six times it says, fall down and worship. He says, when you hear all the music, you fall down and worship. And the other guys come up and say, hey, there was three guys over there and they played the music and they did not fall down and worship. And goes, did you not fall down and worship? You know, it just keeps going, fall down and worship. And we're talking about face in the dirt, body laid out. You are worshiping the whole body. That's pretty cool, right? Six times it says that, but there's a seventh time that it's used in there. And this is the part that really got me, all right? It says that when Nebuchadnezzar took them and the soldiers grabbed them, trousers and all, and threw them in the fire, the Bible says that they fell into the fire. It is the same word. Here's what Daniel is trying to, here's what Holy Spirit is conveying to us in this. There was a multitude of people who fell down and worshiped. There were three who refused to fall down and they fell down. There is a multitude of people who fell down and worshiped a fake God. There are three who refuse to fall down and worship a fake God. And so they end up falling down and worshiping the real God. There's thousands of people who fall down and worship because they're afraid of a fire. And there are three who fall down and worship the true God by going into the fire with the true God. That's what's happening in that text. That worship is all of us. It's your whole body. It's everything you can do and think and say, your heartbeat, your mind. That's what worship is. It has an object, it has a motivation, and it is all of us. Um, y'all, y'all remember that picture of Bernie Sanders that was like, he was all looking cold and stuff? Y'all remember that? I don't remember where he was at. It's like inauguration or something very important, I'm sure. And um, he's sitting there in that chair. He's like this. This doesn't have a back. I need to remember. Um, but anyway, he's sitting there. He's got his little old man mittens on. Y'all remember that? He's sitting there. He's like, I saw a meme the other day where um, it, showed, it showed Bernie Sanders. And I wonder where the camera angle is on this one. Yeah. Um, it shows Bernie Sanders. And he's sitting there like this. And it said, it says, how to know that Pentecostals are mad at your sermon. And it just had a picture of Bernie Sanders like this. <laughs> and then the next picture right next to it says, how to know that Baptists are happy with your sermon. And it had Bernie Sanders sitting there just like. <laughs> right? Because we have this, we Baptists, it always irks me because I'm like really Baptist down to my core. And it really messes with me because it's just not true. Sometimes we're expressive, all right? It's like, 
like there's hot donuts. We get all expressive about hot donuts. We get expressive about getting in line before um, everybody else at the, at, the, at the potluck. We are very expressive about stuff that we do, right? But we're not so expressive in our worship. And that's true. You go to a charismatic or a Pentecostal church and man, they are like expressive, all right? And I've long believed that different denominations, don't at me, don't write me letters, all right? This is just the way that I believe. That um, Presbyterians, uh, I mean not Presbyterians, yeah, Presbyterians and Anglicans, they're super like brainy, okay? They're smart, super smart people over there. And they're thinking deeply about things and it's beautiful. And, um, and uh, the Pentecostals, the Charismatics, they are good at the expression. That's why like um, some of the best worship music that we have comes from that, that side of our family, right? Baptists, we get junk done, all right? We do stuff, all right? They're over there thinking deep thoughts. Great, we're going to read that book later. And um, they're over there uh, making music, which is awesome. We'll turn that on as we do stuff, all right? That's why we have six of the largest seminaries in the world and more missionaries than anybody else. Because at the end of the day, we're not going to really tell you or smile about it, but we're going to go out and rescue people in disasters. That's, that's what we do. Yeah! Hoorah! We're Baptist! You know, that sort of stuff. I, this just irritates me. I see these things all the time. But anyhow, listen to me. Maybe we could be a little bit more expressive. You could, you could let your face know that you believe in a God that resurrected from eternity past. Like, like I understand that it's just, it, it doesn't, like I said, different denominations attract different um, personalities. And so it's okay if you're not super expressive. But what I'm saying is this. It is more than the thoughts you think. It is the stuff you do. So you lift your hands. You sing loud. And maybe you don't sing really loud. Maybe you don't lift your hands. You don't feel comfortable with that. That's fine. But then you make coffee and you change diapers and you, and you teach preteen students and you sing in the choir. You do whatever it is that you do because it is more than just sitting there with good thoughts. It takes all of you. Six times they fell down in worship. Here, listen to me on this. Listen to what I'm saying. The multitude of pagans with their face in the dirt were more worshipful than you are with your happy thoughts sitting there not doing anything. Get up and do something. Find something to do and do it. I do want us all to sing real loud and raise your hands. I think all that's awesome. But more than that, let us all just continue to get stuff done. Darlene Check, she's a worship leader. She says, I long to be known as an extravagant worshiper that God would discover the song in my heart. Listen, song music, right? The song in my heart to be elaborate. Listen to how she describes this. Elaborate over generous and wasteful in my pursuit of him. That's worship. You can't be over generous and not do something, not sacrifice something, not give something away, not run into the fire, into the disaster, into helping other people, giving your last dime so that somebody else can go on mission. It's what we do because it is worship. So you can slam all of this together. You can slam these two thoughts together, the first one and the worship thought together. And what you have is this, God is good all the time. But even if I don't understand, I will worship him. I am committed to it. I believe in it. You may ask yourself, well, what about feelings? Because that's where we get tripped up. 
Sometimes I don't feel like worshiping. Well, listen, it isn't about what you feel. It's about what is right. And sometimes when you feel like it, good. That's awesome. It's going to be more fun in those moments. But when you don't, you still worship. Do you think those three wanted to stand there in front of the strongest man in the world, the most powerful person in the world, threatening to rip them limb from limb, throw them in a fire, destroy their families? You think they wanted to do that? They didn't want to do that, but they did it. They stood there and they fell into the fire and worshiped the one who walked with them in that fire. So here's the application. As you walk out of here, ask yourself these questions. What do you live for? We say, what do you live for? Meaning like, what are your actions? What do you do? What do you spend your life doing? What animates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What do you live for? Why do you do it? Is it because you're afraid of something? Or is it because you have faith in someone? Why do you do it? What do you do? Why do you do it? And when you answer those two questions, I firmly believe you will come to the conclusion of who you worship. That it would be the God of the universe, the only one who is the greatest object of worship. The bottom line is we all worship. It's just that some of us waste it. And, by in, and in doing that, waste everything. We all worship. It's just that some of us waste it. And in doing that, we waste everything. A couple of weeks ago, uh, we were going to a... It's called a Baptist Associational Lunch, all right? And it is as exciting as it sounds, all right? And uh, what it is, is usually pastors and stuff, we get together and we have this lunch that some people made for us, which is always good. And um, then we do like business, like we vote on stuff, all right? And so that day, um, Joseph, our church administrator, uh, Pastor David, and then uh, one of the young men who has surrendered ministry, Cooper, uh, he was... Uh, with me and we were all going over there and that was all I could get to go with me because apparently everybody doesn't want to line up for a Baptist associational meeting and it it was in Sunny Gap it was at Sunny Gap Baptist Church y'all know where that is how many of you have ever seen Sunny Gap Baptist Church right we typed that thing in the GPS it took us down Lower Ridge Road so we're headed down Lower Ridge Road and up ahead of us there's smoke like a lot of smoke all right and um, it didn't even register to me like smoke means fire, fire, danger. All I was thinking of was I'm about to drive my truck through here like a commercial. And so uh, I did. It was awesome, y'all. It was so cool. And so I take I'll drive it and we're going through this, this fire and it was a grass fire. And it was just like going up the hill, right? Nobody's standing around, nothing like that. It's just going up the hill. And uh, David says, are you going to call somebody? And I said, for what? And he's like, there's a fire. You know, we need to, we need to call. I was like, oh, right, yeah, that's an emergency. And so, um, kid you not, we have this conversation. Joseph Cooper will tell you this. We have this whole conversation, like an argument. And I, I tell the truck to call the Conway police, right? And it's not in my truck. It's not programmed in there. So I have to grab my phone and I'm doing And he's like, why are you calling the police? And I was like, I don't know. It's like, I don't want to call 911. He's like, why don't you call 911? I said, because nobody's bleeding. Like, like, you need to be bleeding out if you're calling 911. I don't want to bother those people. I'm going to bother the police department, all right? And so, um, so we get into this debate and stuff. And he's like, you should call the fire department. I was like, I don't know the number to the fire department. And so, so finally, we're, I mean, listen, we are way past this fire at this point. Like, we're just arguing about a fire. And so finally, I call 911. 911, what's your emergency? Or where's your emergency? That's what she says. 911, where's your emergency? I said, Lower Ridge Road. She said, is it the fire? I said, yes, it is. And she said, all right, Conway Police has already been notified. <laughs> <laughs> they like that. 
And then she says, I'm sorry, the fire department. You know, just, and David's like, you know, because you're supposed to call the fire department for a fire, turns out. And um, so they have, I don't know if it, it did anything, but here's what I'm trying to get at. Fires, grass fires are dangerous. I know because I've started a couple of them accidentally and, and they'll spread super fast. And where this was over on Lower Ridge Road, it just looked like brown grass and leaves forever and just brown trees. It would have gone off. I almost allowed Conway to burn to the ground because I got in an argument with the other guy on staff. You know, my prayer is that like a grass fire, this would just spark like today in our prayer in our understanding of who God is and how he is, that it would spark within us this passion, that we would burn with this desire to make much of Jesus. And that like that grass fire, I guess, could have done. I pray that it just spreads all over Conway, Faulkner County, that it ignites these college students. Many of them are going to go back home to wherever home is, get jobs all over the world, that this fire will spread like a fire, like a, like a grass fire, and that the smoke and the flame will be seen from miles and miles around, and that anybody that's close enough will feel the warmth and see the light of what Jesus has done for us. I pray that we would burn. And it won't matter what you feel like. It only matters what he did. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.